Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Good morning. If you haven't met me before, uh, my name's Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. And we've been in a series this month called Christmas Together, and we've been talking about the themes of Advent. So we started things off talking about joy and how do we choose to look for joy instead of being overwhelmed by the stress and the tension of the season. And last week we talked about hope. And specifically, how do we create traditions that help us focus towards finding more hope this Christmas? And today we're talking about love, and next week is going to be peace. And so today we're talking about this idea of how do we practically show love to one another? But before we jump into that, I want to invite you to, um, if you have your phone with you, to pull open the YouVersion Bible app, and if you go to the events tab and you search for Grand Valley, you'll find an event for this morning, and you can follow along with, the, with our service, with some of the notes, everything that goes up on the slides is going to be in there. And usually we do this discussion piece where I've got some questions for you, but what we're doing this week is a little different. In fact, tomorrow we're going to be sending out some discussion questions for if you're in a life group, they'll be really great to work through. And there's also a little piece in there I'm going to describe a little bit later that that is something that will help you to better understand yourself. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but all those links are right in the YouVersion app under the events tab. So you might be thinking to yourself, we're talking about practical love. But isn't love supposed to be impractical? Like, I mean, who would, who would, you don't have to put up your hand on this, but maybe just think to yourself, you know, who would consider themselves to be like the hopeless romantic type? I mean, like you're the type that grew up on 80s rom-coms. You know, you know what I'm thinking. Like, you think like a display of love should be, you know, my husband should get a boombox, and I mean, they're much smaller now, so it wouldn't look as impressive, but they should go stand in the front yard holding the boombox above their head playing my favorite song. Like, that's, that's what love is, right? No one saw that? No one a John Cusack fan? Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's like, you know, we should ride off together into the sunset on the back of a lawnmower because that's the only car the, you know, the kid had. Like... You know, is that what love is? Or maybe it's, you know, you have to fill the house with, you know, bouquets and bouquets of red roses and flower petals and like all these pieces where we think, you know, love should be this grand gesture. I want to tell you a little story about a grand gesture that didn't quite work out. When Nikki and I, uh, we had been dating for a while and we both knew that we were going to get married. Sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to tell this story, but I'm going to anyways. We, we had this, I had this evening planned out in my mind, and we were going out for dinner with some friends, and um, there was this one point in, as we were having dinner, Nikki went to go to the washroom, and we're sitting with these good friends of ours, and, and, one of, and Jenna just like flatly says, so when are you going to propose to Nikki? Like, just when's it going to happen? And what I d- said was like, well, it's, it's going to happen. I've already bought the ring, and I was about to say, and I'm going to propose tonight, like I was going to spill the beans to my, to my friends, but Nikki started walking back at that point, so I didn't. And so I had this whole plan that we were going to have this nice dinner with our friends, and then I was going to like go recreate a bunch of our first dates, like, you know, the whole kind of journey of our romance. But Jeremy and Jenna invited us over and said, hey, we've got this, you know, this new card game. Why don't you come over to our place? Let's play a game. Nikki's always up for games, so she says yes before I can come up with an excuse to say no. So it's like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to their place to play games. You know, not what I had planned. And we played this game. Has anyone played Killer Bunnies? Has anyone heard this? This game's called Killer Bunnies. It is the worst game in the world. I, it may not be. It may not be. My perception of it is, is, is the worst game in the world. And it takes forever. 
like I was intentionally trying to throw the game and lose and like play badly because I'm like, as the like each half hour clicks by in my head, I'm like, okay, can't do that one, can't do that one, can't do that one. We're running out of time. Finally, we leave their place. It was like 11:30. I expected this would like our dinner was going to end at about seven, and I had like three hours planned. And now it's like, all right, cut straight to the chase. And so I had an excuse. I had to come up to the church and check something. And we came up here and I just, you know, cut everything off. All the grand gesture was gone. And we came up here and I proposed to Nikki uh, on the edge of our parking lot overlooking the city. And obviously she said yes. And it was all wonderful in this piece. And, and as we're leaving, I'm like, you know, she said yes. This is the whole thing that matters. And in my head, I'm thinking, I had this whole thing planned out and killer bunnies ruined it. <laughs> Like, isn't an expression of love supposed to be like that grand gesture, that whole big piece? But what actually matters, what actually matters in the end of it is that she said yes. Like, what actually matters is that we got married, like we took the path we wanted to take together. See, sometimes we get so caught up in thinking that love must be these grand gestures, these impractical pieces, and we forget something really important. That the truth is, you know, when I um, am sitting with a couple that's engaged and they're planning their wedding, you know, so much work goes into planning a wedding. Um, and I watch this firsthand with every time I, I marry a couple, you know, and they're, they're wrestling with details, they're trying to figure out their pieces. And I always try to remind them, and oftentimes I, I try to work it into the wedding sermon, the message that I give at their wedding, of saying, remember, today is just one day. And all the planning, all the preparation that you've put into this one day doesn't happen for any other day for the rest of your life. And so today, you know, you look wonderful. You've been up since the crack of dawn getting ready. You've planned every single minute of the day out to a T. It's going to be perfect and wonderful. But tomorrow you wake up and you haven't put that effort into planning the day. And in fact, if you expect every day of your marriage is going to be as joyful and as exciting as your wedding day, you know, you're going to be kind of disappointed. You know, sorry if there's any engaged couples that are expecting it to be that perfect for the rest of your married life. Sorry, it's not going to be that perfect for every day of the rest of your life. See, this is why we sometimes need to take love out of this realm of the grand gesture, out of the realm of the hopeless romantic and into the realm of the practical. How do we actually show to people that we love them on a regular basis? See, when we get it down to its core, when we look at love simply, love is simply showing someone that they matter to you. And in fact, if you watch any like romantic comedies or sitcoms, there's often this trope about who's the first one in the relationship to say, I love you. And you know, if you're sitting with your, with your spouse, you might be able to you know, remember that moment of like, one of you said, oh, I love you so much. The other person's like, oh, I'm still undecided on this. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's this moment of risk that happens in love of saying, you know, are you the first one to say, you know, this is how I feel about you. And you don't know if they feel the same way about you back. And sometimes we get so caught up and we get so wrapped up in this, I don't know what to do that we, you know, we, we cheap out. You know, there was, a, there was this TV show that Nikki and I used to watch a long time ago, and there was this, this couple that was dating, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but one of them was like, said, I love you really early, and the other one goes, uh, I love you too? And then in his head goes, the band? You know, not you too, I love you too, the band? Okay, that one didn't fly. But here's, <laughs> there we go, track with me, come on. But knowing that we matter to someone is important. 
And that's actually what we're all looking for in a relationship. We want to know that we matter, that this person cares for us. The people that we care about care for us back. And, and if we think that love always has to be these grand and practical gestures, we'll get disappointed because they don't happen every day. They don't happen on a regular basis. Or maybe you're married to that like wonderful person that does, and then just don't tell other people about that because then you just raise the bar way too high for any of us to meet and match to. But here's what I want to get to. If we want to take love out of the realm of the impractical and towards the practical, there's a really simple way we can do that. And that's what we're going to focus on today. See, practical love is simply genuine intention and a realized action. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's start with just the first part, a genuine action. What that is, is that means to show love without anything expected in return. Now, uh, there's this, this interesting phenomenon that, that kind of gets you know, talked about every once in a while, and it's, it's what happens in a drive-thru when the car in front of you decides to pay for your you know, drink, your coffee. Maybe some of you have, have had that happen to you. You've been in the drive-thru, and you get to the like, oh, the car in front of you paid for you. And then sometimes they ask this, would you like to pay for the car behind you? And there's this moment, and I, I, I decided to look up, I was curious, what's the longest drive-thru chain that's ever happened? It actually happened in Winnipeg a couple years ago. Uh, one of the Tim Hortons, 228 cars in a row paid for the car behind them. Now, that's, that's a lot of cars. They said it was three hours of their drive through of people paid for the one behind them. Now, it got me thinking, and maybe it's just because I have this little bit of a pessimistic, cynical side of me. Now, the first person in the, in the car, now, maybe they were on a road trip together, and they were like, oh, we'll go, both go through the drive through I'll pay for your coffee. Maybe they planned it. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was, though, let's, for the benefit of the doubt, maybe it was someone just of the kindness of my heart said, here's a 20, you know, pay for the car behind me, and, you know, drove off, generous, caring, loving action to someone they don't know. But then now, for the next 200 and, we'll say 26, because we've excluded the first car and the last car, you come to the window... And the person says, your coffee's been paid for. Would you like to pay for the coffee behind you? Now, what do you feel in that moment? Obligation, guilt, pressure. Oh, I better keep this up. Now, imagine you're coming later in that, and the person at the window says, by the way, 200 cars have done this in a row. Now, now what's your obligation level? Like, like here? Here? See, sometimes we have a receiving problem. Sometimes we have an issue with receiving love. Now, the last person that came through the car, and this is funny because like this, actually, if you look, this happened in uh, 2016, and it made like the National Post and like the Toronto Star. Like this happened in Winnipeg, and it was national news that 228 cars chain of this drive-thru. And they even said, the reporter said, no one knew the motive of why the last car didn't continue. (laughs) Like... Maybe the person behind them had $40 worth of meal, and they were like, I just came for a $3 coffee. See, here's the thing. If we have a genuine intention in love, it is not an obligation. It is not guilt-driven. It is out of a genuine desire to say that someone matters to you. Now, I'm not saying that an anonymous gift of kindness is not love. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if you are in a position where you are giving something to someone with the expectation that they will give something back to you or they will give it to someone else and pay it forward, that is not a genuine intention. See, real love, real practical love with a genuine intention does not ask for anything in return, anything at all. 
Just this is a pure gift of saying that you matter to me or I value you. See, everyone wants to feel like they matter. Everyone wants to feel valued. Everyone wants to feel cared for. And a genuine practical piece of love is saying, you matter. I care for you. See, this is what Paul gets about when he's talking to the church in Rome. And Nikki and I actually have this passage framed uh, in our front entrance. This is part of it. And Paul says this, he says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. See, he understood that we have this tendency that sometimes we love with a little bit of pretend to it. And we love with a, an expectation that we'll get something back. Or we, we, we love with the intention they'll return it. See, if we do that, we've lost the genuine intention. And actually what we're trying to do is we're trying to force a transaction to happen. And it's not the same. So I said that a practical love is a genuine intention plus a realized action. Now, the word realized means to fully understand something. And so what we mean when I say a realized action, it means that you fully understand the action and understand how the other person will receive an expression of love. So there's kind of two pieces to this. The first piece is it's an action. It means it's something you actually have to do. You have to follow through on it. If you're, if you're thinking about you know, someone that you, you care for, that you want to do something for, you have to actually carry through on it. You know, Just saying, oh, well, you know, I, I intended to propose to you. Like, that doesn't get you anywhere, does it? <laughs> you actually have to follow through and propose. Like, you know, it's the same thing. Like, we oftentimes, we have the best of intentions, and we struggle to follow through on them sometimes. And so we have to recognize that an act of love goes beyond just the intention. So we have to have an action. And then this piece of saying it's realized, like it's fully understood. And what this means is that is every one of us is wired to give and receive loves in slightly different ways. And I'm going to rely on the work of a, of a guy named Dr. Gary Chapman. And the name might feel, be familiar to you because he wrote this book quite a number of years ago. And then he wrote multiple variations of this book, kind of more specific to different people groups called The Five Love Languages. And so he's written like the five love languages, like the five love languages for couples, the five love languages for, for singles, for teens, even one like for children, like how do you understand this? And so his whole basis, what he comes down to, he says there's, there's five ways that people are wired to receive love. And each one of us would rank these differently. And so the first one, I'm just going through the order that he puts them in, words of affirmation. So telling someone that they matter, paying someone a compliment, speaking, hey, you did really great on that project. Those are all words of affirmation. And words of affirmation often carry a heavier weight when they're about kind of someone's character and their identity, not just something they did. Like, you know, you were really great when you did X is sometimes not as great as saying, you know what, you were really charismatic in that, you know, you presented really well. Making it about their identity or their character traits and affirming those is often what makes words of affirmation really strong. Second one, acts of service, doing something tangible for someone. So how many of you, maybe you think of this like when you, you know, do the dishes without being asked or you, you know, you, uh, you know, you scrape your spouse's car off, you know, that's the real Canadian act of love is like if your spouse leaves before you do, but you go outside in the cold and you scrape their car or you plug it in, like that's the Canadian act of service, isn't it? But it's doing something for someone, uh, receiving gifts. 
and oftentimes this actually isn't about what the item is. It's the fact that like if you know you go on a trip and I've tried to do this whenever you know I go to a conference or or a denominational event like if I go somewhere I try to bring like a little gift for the kids and it's not actually about the item. Like to be honest I don't actually remember what the item is, but it's about making the kids realize I was thinking about you when I was away. See that's more what the gift is often about is saying I saw this and it made me think of you because of you know whatever that reason is. It's not often always just about what the item is. Uh, and then quality time is just being together, giving someone undivided attention. And it says quality time, so it means it's not just like you're sitting on the couch with Netflix playing and you're both scrolling through Facebook. Quality time is when you're actually engaging with each other, or sometimes it's that, you know, you're doing a task together and you're just, you know, talking about your day. Like, not even having, like, crazy important, deep philosophical conversations, but just Spending time together is a way of showing that you matter to me. Uh, and then the last one he talks about is physical touch. And I mean, this is one's kind of easy. Are you a hug person or are you not? You know, some people, you know, you know, you've probably all had that, like the relative that just like over hugs and you're kind of like, I want to just straight arm to keep our distance. If you're the person that wants to straight arm someone or, you know, purposely go for the handshake when someone's going for a hug, like you may not be a physical touch person and that's okay. But physical touch is often more than just in, uh, if we're talking about married couples, it's about more than just in an intimate physical way. It also means things like, you know, having a hug before you, you know, you leave and you go to work. Um, There's different pieces, you know, when you sit together on a couch, do you sit on opposite ends? Or, you know, like if, if your spouse, like when they sit down, they immediately put their feet on your lap, you know, and maybe they're doing a little hint, 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 foot rub, like... They may be a physical touch person if that's what they do. See, but here's the thing that, that Gary Chapman gets at, is he says, these are all about receiving love. Your primary love languages is how you are wired to receive love, but all of us need to learn how to show love in ways that aren't our primary love language. So even looking at this list, you could probably guess and peg where you are at, and you could probably guess fairly accurately, you know, the people that are important in your life, your, your spouse, your partner, your, your family, uh, maybe your close friends, you could probably guess what some of those are for them. And what we're, what we're going to send out in the discussion groups for your, or the discussion questions for your life group is a link to his website where you can do a free test. And all you do is there's a series of statements and you just pick A or B on them. And at the end, they'll rank them and say where you think, you know, where their guess is of what you are. So, for example, if I uh, was a words of affirmation person and Nikki is a quality time person, I could give her all the words of affirmations. If that's not one of her love languages, she might just dismiss it and not realize that that's what I'm trying to do. See, that's why it's important to remember this next part. Because the love language of the recipient matters more than the love language of the giver. It matters more what the love language of the person you're wanting to show love to than, the, than your love language as the giver. Because if you are missing the mark, are they going to receive it? Well, maybe. They might recognize your attempt, but they might not. And so that's this whole part of saying, if practical love is a genuine intention plus a realized action, it means we've got to show love in ways that people will receive it. It's not about what makes us feel good. But here's the thing about showing love. There's always a cost involved. Now, sending an encouraging text message to someone may only take 10 seconds of your time. That's a pretty small cost. But sometimes it means, you know, rescheduling your day or changing your priorities. 
in order to make the time or the space to put what you know, someone you're trying to show love to, to put their love language at the center of it. And I want to tell you a story about this. Because sometimes when love has a cost, you know, we'd rather just step back and say, ah, no, I don't need to do it. Because there's actually this big piece. Sometimes you know how, how what's missing speaks more than what is there. And I want to tell you a little piece, and I want to take us back to the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. See, Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem because there was a census called. And whenever a census was called, you would have to report to your hometown. Wherever your ancestral home was, you would have to report there and register. Now, Mary and Joseph, we know, like, you know, they traveled on a donkey and Mary was, you know, 10 months pregnant, basically, at the point, you know, trying to get there. And there's something missing in the story. What's missing, and Luke leaves this out on purpose, and we'll see why in a moment, but this is what Luke writes. He says, because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That last phrase, there was no lodging available for them. That line speaks something more than what it says at first glance. See, Joseph wasn't the only one returning to Bethlehem. His entire family was. His entire extended family, his uncles, his aunts, his cousins, his siblings, his parents, his grandparents, if they were still alive, would have all been going to their ancestral home. And what's more, they would have had family and relatives who were there in Bethlehem. And in first century Judea, I mean, the culture of hospitality was even, you know, we think we Canadians are hospitable. When you actually read what historians write about first century, like the culture of hospitality was insanely important. Because this is a, cult- this is a world where, you know, we don't, you can't just pull out a credit card and pay for a meal. You know, you have to take whatever you have with you when you travel. You know, there's no central banking system. You know, there's no, you know, there aren't supermarkets. Like, you have to carry your provisions with you if you're going on a journey like this. And you would rely, there was just this large piece of, of this hospitality of saying, you know, when a traveler comes to your town, someone just takes them in, knowing for the fact that at some point you may be in their town and someone from their town will take you in. See, the fact that Mary and Joseph were turned, had to go to the inn meant they were turned away by their family, even the family that would have been traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem with them. And it also means that they were completely shunned by Joseph's family because of this. But here's what happens. The absence of love from Joseph's family actually highlights the bigger expression of love happening in Bethlehem. See, the reason why Joseph's family wasn't willing to help was pride. They were, their pride got in the way because everyone knew the story that Mary somehow became pregnant before she was married to Joseph. And their family heaped so much shame on them that their own pride wouldn't allow them to help their relatives. To say there was so much shame on the act of being pregnant before marriage that we're not going to help you. You're on your own. 
You know, that's why Joseph intended to divorce and break off the engagement with Mary before the angel intervened and said, no, this is for real. She's going to give birth to the Messiah. And on, in that stable, the only place they could find shelter when Joseph's family had rejected them was this demonstration of God's love coming into the world in a practical, tangible way, in a way that supersedes the prideful ignorance of Joseph's family. See, love has this ability to cut through pride. Love has this ability to overcome the barriers that we may put between us and other people. There was so much pride in Joseph's family, they didn't want their reputation to be tarnished by helping someone in need because of the shame that was being projected on them for Mary being pregnant before they got married because they couldn't see, or maybe they chose to not understand or chose not to believe what God was really doing and what God had spoken to them about. See, if someone had chosen love instead of pride, Mary and Joseph would have had a place to stay that night. And our story would have been different. But instead we get this story of love coming into a world that had already rejected it. And despite that, God still saw fit to come into the world for Jesus to be born the way he was for the sake and for the purpose of why he was born. And so we have four Gospels in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew and Luke are the two that include the stories of Jesus' birth. But John wrote his later, and John took a little different approach. He said, I'm not going to rewrite everything that's been written. I'm going to capture the high parts, the points that you need. But John, because he was writing later, had this bigger picture and bigger understanding of what this all meant. And so he starts his gospel, John chapter 1, with this kind of large thesis statement. He makes this this large piece of saying, this is what I'm going to tell you. This is what I want you to look for as you read my testimony and my story of what Jesus did. And so from John 1 verse 10, John writes this. He says, the light, which he's using as as a coded word for Jesus. He says, the light came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth, resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word, this is another one of those terms that John uses for Jesus to talk about this bigger reality of who Jesus is. So the word, capital W, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, what John is laying out is even though we rejected him, even though our pride got in the way, even though our history got in the way, even though we couldn't see fit to take in a young couple that was in desperate need of help, God's love still came into the world. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. See, this is God's purpose. And in fact, one of the other translations of this from the message changes verse 14 and says, so the word became human and moved into the neighborhood. How is that for an expression of saying, and God moves into the neighborhood to dwell with us and to show his love? Because that's what Jesus was doing. That's why Jesus was born, to show this practical, tangible love. And love becomes this consistent theme that Jesus constantly talks about and teaches about. 
And last week we talked a little bit about one of the the traditions, the values that Moses was trying to instill into the Israelites as they were crossing into the promised land. And Moses made this command. And later on, when Jesus is, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to find a reason to kill him. They're trying to find a way to, to shut him down. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, what's the most important question? Or what's the most important command? They're trying to trap him with this. And Jesus replies by quoting this command that Moses gave the Israelites thousands of years earlier. Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Pretty good answer. But of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. See, Jesus makes this declaration that if we love God first and if we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we take that to its core, we will fulfill everything that God ever requires of us. He's telling this first century culture that is steeped in rules and regulations and trying to hold to them of saying, if you just love, love God, love your neighbor, you don't have to worry about the rules because you will meet everything the rules are trying to protect and guard you towards. You can do that way simpler. Instead of you know, memorizing the 630 some commands of the Old Testament, have two. Isn't that easier? See, Jesus constantly spoke of this. And see, for those of us here who would call ourselves Christians, who have, have committed our lives to Christ, we cannot ignore this piece of love. We cannot ignore what Jesus has called us to because it's so fundamental to it. If you're here and you're just checking this out and you're just like, I don't know what I believe. You know, my, my friend invited me to come here with you. That's okay. You can just take this as good advice. Because for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus with our lives, to say this is how we want to pattern our lives, there's a question we have to ask ourselves, and I'm I'm quoting a pastor, Andy Stanley, in this, of saying this, what does love require of me? Because as a follower of Christ, we don't get to choose to say, I'm just not going to show love. We can't. Love is so fundamental to who Jesus is, to who his character is, to who God's character is, to why Jesus even came that we cannot choose to omit love. Now, if you're, and again, like I said, if you are saying, I don't know what I believe, but I'm, I'm here and I'm curious, this is not an obligation on you. This is not. But it's, I think it's good. And I think this is a question that if we honestly ask ourselves this question, it will change how we act. What does love require of me? So if you're in a situation where you're... <laughs> you realize that, you know, maybe it's, maybe you want to find a way to be more loving in your regular life. Maybe it's, you know, you realize that your relationship isn't exactly where you want it to be. Or maybe it's even, you know, I think about this in relation to my kids of saying, you know, how many times am I just telling my kids, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Like how many times am I just trying to, you know, herd the kids and keep them alive? (laughs) But am I actually imprinting love on them? Am I remembering to tell my kids I love them? Because it's so much easier to tell them, you know, don't do that, don't do that, don't hit your brother, don't take toys. Like, if we stop and we ask ourselves, what does love require of me? How does that change it? Because love requires us to act differently. And so we go back to what is practical love? A genuine intention plus a realized action. 
Love requires us to have a genuine intention. To show love, to say that people matter. No matter what. Without expecting anything in return. And a realized action means we have to follow through on it. It can't just be, well, I intended to say, you know, to compliment you on that. Or I intended to tell you that I loved you. Like, that doesn't get you anywhere. How do you realize the action? How do you show love in ways that people are wired to respond? What does love require of me? So I want to, you know, instead of coming up with lots of examples, I'm sure you can think of your own. So I want to ask you to do something. So first, I want you to think of someone who you care for. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a kid, maybe it's a, uh, a neighbor, maybe it's a friend. Who's someone that you care about? And just as you think about that person, ask yourself, what does love require of me towards that person? What does love require me to do differently? And I'm sure you can think of something. So now you, now you run it through this. Okay, what's my intention in this? It's almost like a little motive check. You know, what's my intention in this? Am I doing this because I care? Or am I doing this because I want them to show love back to me? If it's the latter, you've got to figure out what to do with that. How do I get to a genuine intention of not wanting something in return when I do whatever it is I do? And then you've got to say, okay, what's the realized action? What do I actually do to show to this person that they matter to me, that I care for them, that I love them? So what are you going to do? How are you going to act on it? What's your timeline? What's your plan? Because if we just leave it here, and we just think about this on a Sunday morning when we're all together, it's just a thought. It doesn't become an action. It doesn't become tangible. It doesn't become practical. Now, if you really want to make this difficult on yourself, there's a different thing you can do. And then you have to start. It's the same process, but you start with someone else. Who's the person I don't want to show love to? Who's the annoying coworker? that you intentionally take your breaks at a different time they do so you don't sit in the break room with them? You know, who's the, the neighbor that you, you know, don't want to leave your house at the same time they do because you don't want to say hi to them or, you know, you're frustrated because their dog was pooping on your lawn or whatever it is? Who's the person that you would regard as your enemy? Who's the person... You know, next week we're talking about peace and we're going to take this angle of talking specifically about like family gatherings. How do you find peace at family gatherings? I don't exactly know what I'm saying on that one yet. I'm still trying to figure that one out. (laughs) Who's your enemy? What does love require of you towards your enemy? Because that question leads you down a whole big rabbit trail. Because the moment you start seeing that person, seeing that enemy, seeing that person that's the other, whatever the other is, and you ask yourself, what does love require of me? It means you can't treat them as your enemy anymore. It means you can't harbor anger to them anymore. You can't try to shame them anymore. What about this? What if you tried praying a blessing for them? You don't even have to, like, this is a first step. Now, eventually, you probably, you know, God might prompt you and say, no, there's something to do. You know, that neighbor that you don't like, the next time it snows, go shovel their driveway. You know, there might be something like that that God prompts and pushes you to do, but start with this. How do you pray something good for them? What would it mean to every day to pray that that person comes to know God's love? 
Or what would it mean to pray that, you know, that promotion they were chasing actually happens? Or what does it mean to pray that, you know, maybe they've shared about their family is kind of dysfunctional? What would it mean to pray that they have a great time together when they gather as a family at Christmas time? How would that change it? How would that change it in our hearts? See, this question, what does love require of me? If we look back at Joseph and Mary for a second, what did love require of Joseph's family? And we're 2,000 years later, you know, Luke leaves them out of the story on purpose because to his first century readers, they would have seen this and asked the question, where was Joseph's family? Love would have required for them to take Joseph and Mary in. Love would have required Mary to not give birth alone with only Joseph there to help her. Love would have required her mother, her siblings, her cousins, her aunts to be there to help her. And we're talking about an era where infant mortality rates were 30%. Joseph and Mary shouldn't have had to go through that alone. But in the absence of that love, God's greater love came into the world. And so that's where I want to leave us. What does love require of me? Let me take a moment and pray. God, we know that we are so deeply loved by you that even through everything you endured to bring love into our world, that you love us and you care for us deeply. And God, I pray this week that you would shape our hearts to be more receptive to your love. That we would learn to connect with how you care for us. And that as people that receive love from you, that we would have an overflowing of love to show to others. Would we have this desire that when a situation comes up there'd be this question in the back of our mind saying what does love require and god i pray that as we would act upon these things that you would make it go so much further than we can that you would stir in people's hearts to recognize that the reason that we do these things is because of you that the reason why the reason why we care is because you care for us and that you care for the people in our lives, and you care, and you so deeply want everyone to be in a relationship with you. And so, Lord, would we be better at living that out? And God, would you encourage us this week? Would you let us see the way this makes a difference in people's lives, so that we would be spurred on to continue this practice of showing practical, tangible love? And Lord, this season of Christmas when it feels like there's so many opportunities to not feel love, would we be truly transformed by the love that you gave by stepping into our world? In your name we pray. Amen. Folks, I hope you have some crazy stories of what love does this week because of this. And next week we're going to be talking about peace. We're going to be talking about dealing with conflict at Christmas time. Uh, and I, again, I want to echo what Max said earlier. If you haven't picked up a ticket for Christmas Eve, um, please do so. It's just so that we can uh, kind of get a number on our, uh, get a handle on our numbers. So I want to invite you, please plan to be here next Sunday and plan to be here for Christmas Eve. It's an awesome time to remember God's love for us. All right. Have a great week, folks. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.